0: We are considering tonight what is perhaps the most well-known of these seven churches mentioned in Revelation. This is the address to the church in Laodicea, and it also happens to be the most misinterpreted text of these uh, seven churches that are mentioned here in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, especially modernly. This, This address to the church in Laodicea is the most misinterpreted of the seven. And so I would think that has to do primarily at least with this version of evangelism that is sadly popular in our culture today. And it's called easy believism. I don't know if you've ever heard of someone's talk about easy believism, but it's it's an established thing among Christians concerning a way of evangelizing the lost. In other words, this method of evangelism is one that makes entrance into christ's kingdom easy and i understand how that can be quite confusing really because in one sense it is easy Uh, we don't do anything to save ourselves we don't make ourselves saved we don't earn it we don't keep it god makes us born from above or regenerated christ earned it and god father son and holy spirit keeps us saved. And all that we do is simply we respond in faith. And faith is even given to us. We read Ephesians 2.8 and 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. And so in that sense, it's it's easy. And in in that faith that we receive, we repent of our sins, we believe and trust God, and we live a life of continual repentance. And it's all the response to what God has first done in us. But easy believism discounts Easy believism as a system, as a school of evangelist thought, it it has some issues. It discounts that first needed work of God. It pronounces a person as saved simply because they intellectually understood the message, and then they prayed a prayer at the end of that meeting. It makes conversion, which conversion means to go from one standing to another standing, right? So all Christians are converted. We go from in in this case conversion, which would would mean going from an enemy of God to a beloved child of God, and so easy believism, It makes conversion solely based on what we do, even if God doesn't do His necessary work of granting faith in the first place. So, in another sense, um, to think of. Entrance into God's kingdom, it's, it's not easy. It's hard. Salvation is not easy. There's an it's impossible even, Jesus says at one point, with man, it's impossible. Uh, there's an, a, for it to happen though, it comes with an acknowledgement of Adam's sin in the garden, which makes us guilty and in need of salvation. There's an awareness of our own sin and the means of this salvation took a lot. Uh, we read in scripture that God chose people before the foundation of the world. God made promises to Adam to redeem people after the fall. He made a nation out of a man named Abraham, who the promised Savior would come through. And he detailed out his law and his character to Abraham's descendants. There is the covenant of redemption and the the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, that promised Messiah, the promised Savior and eternal God. He takes to himself a human nature. He's born into creation miraculously, miraculously so that he's not under the same curse of condemnation that Adam brought in. He's not under Adam, yet he's still a true man. And then he never sins. He fully obeys and keeps all the law of God that he, God had revealed. and he, Then he trains up men to teach further what he started and to explain more, the apostles. And then he dies on the cross taking the penalty for those that he chose before the foundation of the world upon himself. Then he's raised on the third day, and not very long after that, he ascends back to heaven. And then he lives there to make intercession for all who believe, and he still continues in blessing his people now. And when a person is saved, when they enter Christ's kingdom in conjunction upon hearing the gospel, the good news which I just explained, it's because God comes to that person in power, and he makes them alive in Christ. It's That's not something we can do to ourselves. That's the work of God. So in, in that sense, it, it's hard. Believing is hard because we can't make it happen ourselves. But if we believe, it's because God has worked that in us, and then we evidence that by the way that we respond. And even all those things that I just mentioned, I mean, when you first become a Christian, you don't understand all the different details and things about that, but you have this you have this the the early seeds of belief in your life and in your heart and in your mind. <clears throat> the reason why anybody is saved is because God first comes and causes them to be made alive in Christ. He causes them to be born again, born of the Spirit, as he says in John chapter three. And then we respond to that work of God with belief and trust. But what easy believism does is it just throws out some Christian truth, sometimes even a perversion of the truth. And if a person responds with acceptance of what was said, then they are instructed to pray a prayer. And then at that point, at the end of the prayer, they're declared to be a believer, a Christian. Sometimes repentance isn't even mentioned. There's no acknowledgement of the Spirit's prior work on the heart leading to a true salvation. And that's problematic. And one of the things that advocates of this kind of evangelism do is to take a line from this passage that we have to this address to the church in Laodicea and then apply it to a lost person. And so they say something like this God loves you. And this mind you they're talking to a lost person, maybe a friend or a family member. And they say, Listen, you know, I'm a Christian and I want you to know the the joy that I have and so let me explain this to you. And they say, well God loves you. He's got this wonderful plan to bless your life and all you have to do is just accept him. He's standing at the door to your heart. You just need to let him in. Well, that, that last part is taken from the passage that we're going to read here in just a moment. But there's all kinds of problems with that. Namely, that's not even what the verse says. And the context of the verse even is not appropriate for doing that kind of evangelism. Uh, it's not appropriate to use that sentence, that phrase, when you're evangelizing someone who is lost. And the irony of it all is that doing such a thing actually ends up creating lukewarm church members and churches, the very problem that our Lord is going to address here. So what we're going to do here is take this passage in two parts, maybe three parts, actually. Um, so we'll start tonight and then finish it up next week, or Lord willing, we will take two weeks, we'll see. I initially planned on doing 14 through, seven, 14 through 16, maybe 17 tonight. We're just doing verse 14 tonight. So we'll see what happens in the next coming weeks. Um, So let's read the whole thing, though. So we have the whole context of everything that's being said to this uh, church in Laodicea. And then we'll turn our attention to specifically what is being communicated in verse 14. So we'll read and then we'll pray. So the reading of God's word beginning at verse 14 in Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time to be in your word tonight, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our hearts to have understanding, that we'd be able to consider some of the difficult things in this passage beginning tonight and over the next week or two as long as you would have it to take for us god and that you would uh, through that cause us to grow in the faith and to grow in love for you we need you lord in jesus name we pray amen so fairly simple for tonight Uh, we'll do the same thing with this passage that we've done with the other ones as well the other six addresses to these churches so if you're thinking of an outline in your mind first uh, we'll consider the physical location of laodicea because that often has to do with the criticism and the warnings and the things that are said by God in a spiritual sense, and then because God, in His sovereign wisdom, has orchestrated things this way to describe the church, and so there would be this um, extra emphasis for the original audience that they would be aware of. So we have to deal with these physical things in the actual city as well, because again, they have spiritual implications that God, His sovereign mind and will. Um, is pointing out. Secondly, we'll deal with the identification of th- of Christ that the letter gives, and then starting next time, we'll deal with the criticism that he gives to the church, the rebuke that he gives to the church, uh, and the stern rebuke, as we'll see. There's no obvious commendation in the letter, comment to commend, to encourage, to praise, um, is what I, I saw in a couple commentaries. Um, I don't technically believe that. Daniel Akin, his commentary, for example, says there's no commendation at all for this church. So does G.K. Beale, But I would disagree with that. I think there is commendation here. There is praise or encouragement here. It's just slightly veiled. and But the reality of that has led to a lot of the misinterpretation of the pastor as well, but that'll be for next time. So number one, the first thing we need to do is consider the city of Laodicea. So verse 14 begins in a similar way. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? And then Jesus identifies himself in a un- in a unique and familiar way. But again, to the angel or to the messenger of the church, in other words, to the elders, to the pastors of of this church, he, the, the letters addressed to them because they have a unique responsibility and they have to answer for their role in the health of the church. And so these have all been addressed to them. And of course, specifically, this one is addressed to the church in Laodicea. A real congregation that existed at the time of this letter being written, and was filled, filled with people that the apostle John knew. He personally knew. But the issues before this church are common to churches that exist in this time span in between Jesus' first and second coming. Now, Laodicea is the last stop in this circular letter route. Remember, John is on Patmos. He's he's off to the west of the land, and these letters are first, or this letter is first delivered to Ephesus, and then it goes north. And then it goes east, and then it goes down all the way back down to Laodicea. It was a well-known city, a wealthy city. Even um, the church considers themselves to be rich, right? We read that in verse 17. But it wasn't wealthy in the same way that like Ephesus was wealthy, for example. This was a smaller city than Ephesus, but it was located on this plateau and it existed basically like at a crossroads for major communication routes. So if you were coming from the east and you were traveling to Ephesus, Ephesus is this major port city with a lot of important things are going on. You would have to pass through um, this city, Laodicea, Laodicea, and it became a center for banking. And a regional center for the collection of the Jewish temple tax, which then led to a significant Jewish population being uh, centered there. And a question for you guys Were the Jews, and not soft speaking of like ethnically people, I'm speaking the religion, because some Jewish people were Christian, right? Many of the first Christians were Jewish. But were the Jews, those who rejected um, that Christ and Messiah, were they from the Christians at this time? Were the Jewish people friendly to Christians at this time? No, they were not, right? In two previous letters, he talks about attacks from Jews being against them. So they'd be dealing with that same sort of thing here as well. This specific city ended up having a lot of wealthy people living there as banking community. And it was so wealthy that when an earthquake destroyed the city in 60 AD, the citizens refused the help of Caesar and just paid for the rebuilding of it themselves, much different than Philadelphia, who didn't have to pay tribute to Caesar for about 10 years while they rebuilt. Uh, they did receive imperial aid when an earthquake hit in 20 AD, but by 60 AD, they just handled it themselves. And most historians believe that Christians started populating this area around 50 or 60 AD. But remember, this letter is being written about 90 AD. And a quick side note here, if you think about the that Discourse, where Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25, he's warning about the destruction of the temple. One of the things that he said was, you're going to hear about earthquakes. And there's going to, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be wars and rumors of war. Well, we've been seeing all of that happen to these churches. This is the third church that we've um, learned about that it was impacted by an earthquake. And uh, was Smyrna was the one that was besieged by different armies, all leading up to 70 AD. And so those warnings that Jesus had made there in the, in the, during his early ministry all came true, all happened, and they impacted the cities so much so that the people uh, were, were still alive who experienced it, and that impacted their faith and the way that they lived, even by the time John is writing this letter. So this is a, a wealthy city, a proud city, and those characteristics bled into the church as well, and we need to be careful that the things the world prides itself on aren't emulated by the church as well. That's been something that we've seen in every one of these seven letters. The things and the characteristics of the people in the city bled into the people of the church as well. You you might think we don't really have that issue in Antioch um, because, you know, what is Antioch in our modern world? There isn't much that we pride ourselves in here in Antioch, but the danger exists nevertheless. It could happen. For example, um, because we are... A suburb outside of a major city, we might think that you know nothing happens here oh there's there's nothing to do in Antioch. there's nothing fun to do in Antioch, nothing important, nothing special, and not like things happen in like a surrounding city like in San Francisco or Sacramento or something like that. but hopefully that sort of maybe that and it might be true to an extent, but hopefully that sort of mentality wouldn't sneak into the church we should still believe that God does important and special things in the church, that he does them every time someone is saved even. But he might even have be his will, who knows, to have an open door to many conversions here in Antioch. And just because Antioch is a small little suburb, it's not some big city, doesn't mean that something big can happen here. So we can't let that sort of an attitude of the what defines a city impose itself upon the church. But there is more going on with the church in Laodicea and its physical characteristics as well. The calling of them as lukewarm is more complex than we might understand to be. We probably all know that lukewarm isn't very good uh, just because we all have microwaves, right? And microwaves tend to make things like blistering hot on the outsides or the edges, but then like lukewarm towards the middle. I know. And, And that's annoying. And of course, we would consider cold being bad when you take something out the microwave. But there's something more going on here. Uh, it's not that simple. Laodicea has two neighbors to the north and to the south of them, Hierapolis to the north, and they're famous for having these hot springs. People can still visit them today even. And the people believe that hot water um, would have medicinal effects, some, some good effects on the eyes as well too. You notice in a, a text I mentioned a solve for their vision. But then also beneath them, there is a city of Colossea. And Paul even mentions Laodicea in his letter to the Colossians in Colossians chapter four. And Colossia had this cold water spring that was also really helpful for the city and provided good health benefits for the people. But Laodicea had no water source. Again, it was up on this plateau, and so they got it piped in from the north. And by the time that water got to Laodicea, it was dirty and it was lukewarm—the kind of thing that you would spit out of your mouth if you took a sip of it. So something that is Cold here is actually good, but we'll have to save that for next time when he compares this hot, cold, and lukewarm. So that's Laodicea, and these characteristics of the city God will sovereignly elaborate upon to speak of the spiritual issues that the church is facing. But first, we get the self description of the letters originator of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's actually a little different here than in the previous addresses. There are four things to note of in verse 14. First, that these are the words of the Amen. Secondly, that he's a faithful witness. Third, a true witness. And fourth, that he is the beginning of God's creation. So one title and then three ascriptions that we need to understand rightly. First then, these are the words of the amen. The amen. The the amen. It's not like how we would say amen at the end of a prayer, which means it's true and that we agree. Uh, and that we know that God hears us, it means in that context, like, yes, in an emphatic sense, it means, so be it. It's similar to that here, but here, this is a title that the Lord Jesus himself has. And so the question is, is what does it mean for Jesus to be the amen? Uh, First off, we should note that we don't really hear this very often, do we now? I mean, many, Not many people often refer to Jesus as the Amen. Uh, for example, in prayer, we might say something like, Jesus, you are Lord, or you're the Savior, or you're the prophet, the, our priest, you're our King. But we don't hear very often, Jesus, you're the Amen. Although this passage would make it clear that it is right and good to even do that. This is what Jesus is describing to himself here. He is the Amen. Uh, the Greek word for Amen occurs eight times in this book. In seven of those times, in other words, every time this word is used, except for this example here in chapter three, the word Amen is an acc- acclamation. It's used as an acclamation. In other words, like how we would use it when someone says something that is true. and So we would say Amen when they may say something that's true that we like, that we agree with, or how we would use it at the end of a prayer. It's a, it's a way of loudly affirming something uh, the word is used like that in this book seven times only once is it used as this title, but you need to understand something about the word amen or amen to get what is being meant here. Amen in the Greek is a transliteration of the same word in Hebrew so transliteration is when you take the pronunciation of a word in its original language and then you spell it how it sounds in a different language, the language that that you speak. So for example, if I had a whiteboard up here and I wrote in Japanese these symbols that none of us would be able to read unless you could read Japanese, it would mean nothing to us. But then if I said, hey, this, this is the word karate. Well, the reason karate is a Japanese word that we transliterated into English. And so when a Japanese person says the word karate, Well, what does it sound like to us in English? It sounds like K-A-R-A-T-E. And so we spell out karate. That's a transliteration of the Japanese word. Well, it's the same thing that's going on here in Hebrew with the word amen into the Greek. And so it's kind of a play on words here because in the Hebrew, the word amen means true. It means truthfulness. It's the equivalent actually of faithful and true. The very words that are used to describe the kind of witness that the Lord is here. Or even think of how we use the word. It's transliterated to English as well. And so when we see it as meaning it is true or like an affirmative uh, yes or so be it, we are also reminded then of what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Verse 21, um, excuse me, verse 20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him that is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Or listen to how the King James Version translates it. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. So so there we read that all the promises of God are found in Christ. Every promise of God is found in Jesus. They are yes in him. They are amen in Christ. They are all true in christ in other words they all culminate in christ and the hope of the promise of all these promises of, of deliverance and salvation are given to the church from the fall of eden on they're all realized and actualized in christ the everlasting love of god every spiritual good his divine protection his gracious presence and many 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 more things they are all yes and amen in Christ. In other words, apart from Christ, those things aren't ours. Apart from Christ, we get wrath. Apart from Christ, we get judgment from, from Yahweh. Wrath and judgment are ours. But Christ is the amen. He's the faithful and the true one. In Him, Everything good from God is yes for us. They are ours in Christ. The church in Laodicea needs to remember that. They aren't that great apart from Christ. He tells them what they are like apart from him in verse 17, actually, and it's not good. He says that you think you are, you say you are rich and prosperous and not in need of anything. But then he tells them in verse 17 what they really are like if they're not attached to him, if they're not dependent upon him. If we are to be truly rich with wealth that moth and rust can't destroy, if we are to be truly prosperous in such a way that even death cannot rob us of our prosperity, then it must be found in the amen. It must be found in the gracious provision of Christ Jesus, who is the amen, who is the one that all the promises of God are in. And so he's also reemphasizing that kind of witness that the lord jesus is remember in the hebrew amen is the equivalent of faithful and true and we read here that jesus is the faithful and true witness and a little bit different than the previous six addresses actually these descriptions aren't pulled from the description of the glorious exalted christ that we read of in chapter one and in between verse nine and twenty the introduction for the other six lessons are all pulled from chapter, or chapter one, verse nine through twenty. Here, though, we're called back to verse five, where Jesus in verse in Revelation one five is called the faithful witness. He's also called that in Revelation nineteen eleven. And just last week, in the address to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus was described as the true one. He's the true witness. Also, he's the amen, the faithful and the true witness. We are not those things. That's the point. The church in Laodicea is not these things. Our witness before God, even on our best days, is not what it should be. Our faithfulness to God, to trust Him, to love Him, to obey Him, even on our best days, is not what it should be. But Christ Jesus is these various things. In Him is the yes of God. He is the amen. He alone is. That's why... He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's why there is no salvation in any other name under heaven. There is no one who is faithful and true like Christ Jesus is, who witnesses to God on our behalf. We all stand accused of guilt in Adam. Our own sin accuses us. The devil would happily point out our sin and accuse us before the Lord. But the Lord has set up a wonderful defense for us in the gospel of Christ. We aren't accepted in ourselves, in our own righteousness, in our own goodness. We are accepted in the beloved, we read in Ephesians 1.6. We aren't worthy of it, but Christ is the worthy one. We're going to read about that in the next couple chapters, actually. Chapters 4 and 5 in the apocalypse here in Revelation are all about this vision that he has of the throne room of God, and there we read that that there's someone who who's not who who's worthy to open this scroll. And it's this wonderful, uh, great text that that we that we're looking forward to get into here, but the point now here is he's and remember this church in Laodicea, four and five and six all the way through Revelation chapter twenty two. All, all those words are for this specific church as well, too. They're for all those, to all the churches. The whole book of Revelation was given to all of these seven churches and passed around in a circle, and to other churches, and to us today as well, too. But it is so. It is Christ who is the faithful and true witness. It is his, it is with his testimony, which includes his work of atonement, that we are accepted before God. That we are again accepted in the beloved, Ephesians one six. The beloved, of course, is Jesus. Now, let me ask you guys a question. Do you remember how many witnesses are required to bring a charge against someone in the Old Covenant? Two. I see some twos going up. Yeah, In Deuteronomy, it especially talks about this, but it talks about it in other places in the Old Testament as well, too. Um, What it says is that, that you would need a charge of two or three witnesses. So not, so one witness would not be enough. Two witnesses is the minimum that would be required. Another question. How many people are required to bring a charge against, so this is in the New Testament now. So how many people, and we read this in, I believe it's 1st Timothy, how many people are required to bring a charge against an elder? Two. It's still two. Not a trick question. It's still two again. In Revelation eleven, there's two witnesses that are described there. There's a. That's not a question. There's a lot of debate about the, who those two witnesses are. We'll get to that eventually. But the important thing to note now is that there's again two witnesses in Revelation eleven. There needs to be at least two. So remember that this is apocalyptic literature, and apocalyptic literature uses numbers and repetition to make a point. And seven, of course, we've talked about this before, is the number of completeness, the number of perfection. We're working through the seven letters of the seven churches right now, which again, these are seven real churches, but the fact that there's seven of them implies the completeness of the church, the fullness of the church, and that it has meaning for us today. So two witnesses, and the number for completion being seven, would mean that the number then for perfect witnesses, a witness who is faithful and true, in other words, is 14. Well, God and his wisdom, in using apocalyptic literature here, made it so that the name Jesus appears in Revelation from chapter 1 to chapter 22 14 times. You guessed it, 14 times. Same thing with the word servant and saint. In other words, descriptions of people who follow Jesus, who are supposed to be living their life after the same manner that Jesus is, and Jesus is the faithful and true witness. He's the perfect witness those words and the name of Jesus are used 14 times. And so what the Lord is doing is essentially witnessing unto himself that his witness is true. Not only does he tell us plainly here that Jesus, in this passage, but he also communicates the same truth in taking advantage of apocalyptic literature and the roles that we are to abide in when we read it. Christ Jesus is the amen. He is faithful and true. He is the perfect witness the faithful and true witness. Everything in our world hinges on him. Even more, when we think of the salvation that we have and the blessings that we have, we have to think of them in light of Christ. He is the source. He is the amen. All the promises of God are in him. They are yes in him. Yes and amen in him. And then there's that last bit of description, which at first reading seems a bit strange. The amen, Christ Jesus, is the beginning of god's creation now to be clear this isn't contradicting other places in scripture that say jesus is uncreated although i could understand how at first reading of that it sounds like they're saying jesus is the first thing that was created but that would contradict scripture and the testimony of god uh, colossians 1 says that all things have been created through him him being jesus well if he is a being, and he's a thing then, then how can he be created through himself if he was at one time not created? It, it doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. It can't be true. Je- Jesus is the creator. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, you know we read that Jesus is the Word. The Word was in the beginning with God, and the Word is God. So this phrase here, in chapter 3, that says Jesus is the beginning of God's creation, it's not the mistake of the Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses or historically Arianism, named after the Bishop Arius, who taught that Jesus was less than the Father, that he was a created being. It's not that. It's not saying that Jesus is the furry first that was created and all everything else came after that. That's not the testimony of Scripture. It's not what's being said here. The word beginning here in the Greek is the word archae. It's the same word that's used back in Revelation 1.8, where there we read that Jesus is the beginning and the end. In other words, this is implying that Jesus is over all of creation. When he's saying that here he's the beginning of the creation, what it's implying is saying that Jesus is over, he's ruling, he is, he is the arche over all of creation, that he is a faithful and true witness who knows all and is over all, and is ruling all of God's creation. And in order for them to do that, he must be God himself. The church in Laodicea, every church needs Christ, this Savior, at all times. Or we would be lost and forsaken. The whole of creation is being upheld by the word of his power, Colossians seven says. That is Jesus. We should fear him. Laodicea should fear him. And also, we should love him, because he first loved us and is our witness before the throne of God. And every blessing we enjoy is found in him. But there's more happening in this introduction, and we'll close considering this. So turn with me to Isaiah 65. Old Testament, you see Jeremiah, you're getting close. Isaiah 65. The ultimate blessing that we have in Christ is to dwell with him forever in peace and in joy in the new heavens and the new earth. We don't simply want to go to heaven just because there's no punishment there. or We don't simply want to go to heaven simply because, well, I have family members that are going to be there. The main reason that a Christian desires to be in heaven is so that you can be with God forever, unencumbered by any sin that would hinder your relationship with him. It is a blessed thing to be in a relationship with the Lord. And and the experience of it that we have now, we don't even know the fullness of the joy of it because we still have the sin in our life that remains, that causes us to desire things less worthy than God. But that's the ultimate blessing in Christ, is to dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And the Spirit is doing here in Revelation 3, what he's doing, is showing that Christians now are already beginning to have that blessing. It's not as good as it will be when Jesus returns bodily. Obviously, the congregation in Laodicea is struggling. The things that, that there's a rebuke offered to them, there's a very real possibility that many of them are not actually saved, and the ones that... Are saved, they need to repent, and so here comes this warning to this church. And that won't be the case when Jesus consummates the kingdom. That won't be the case in the new heavens and the earth when sin is finally defeated and death is destroyed. There'll be no need for a rebuke from Jesus at that point because we'll, we won't sin. Again, It's we don't exactly know how good it's going to be to live in the new heavens and the earth with Christ Jesus and never having to have a rebuke come to us or, or a correction for sin like that. It's. Will be amazing. But upon the surety of Jesus' resurrection and exaltation, these promises, those promises that I just mentioned that are future, they are ours already in a sense, in this tension, and we can enjoy the first fruits of them even now. He wants his church and Laodicea to be aware of that, even before he issues the needed rebukes to them. And so with this introduction, Jesus is calling our attention actually back to Isaiah 65. This verse 14, he's calling our attention back to um, Isaiah 65. So Isaiah 65, verse 16. uh, Start at verse 16, okay? So verse 16 says, So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. The word truth there. It's... It's Amen. It's the word Amen. It can remember in Hebrew, Amen. Simply, it can be translated as truth or faithfulness. So it, literally, it's the word Amen. So, so shall shall bless himself by the God of Amen, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, or again, the God of Amen, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Then verse seventeen: For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Eighteen, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Now, if we were to keep reading to the end of this chapter, it goes on to explain, in language that the original audience would understand and be aware of, with types and allegory of what the blessed life in the new creation will be like. So it says stuff like the lion will lay down the lamb, and you know, figurative image imagery like that. The old um, people will live to old, very, very old age. But really what it's meaning is that people will live forever. And so it's describing this blessed life in the new creation. And so what is being communicated here, here in Revelation chapter 3, which is a big source of joy and happiness for us and for the church in Laodicea, is that the blessing of this God of amen is nothing other than the creation of the new heavens and the new earth a place in which we can live with him and be with him forever, all because of what he has done, not because of what we do, but because of what he has done for his saints, for the saints. As G.K. Beale notes, it says, Christ and his resurrection is the beginning of this blessed state that all the elect will enjoy. Christ Jesus is the amen, the faithful and true witness, precisely because he is the beginning of the fulfillment of Isaiah's new creation prophecy. If G, in other words, if Jesus didn't raise from the grave, then there would be no hope for this new heavens and this new earth. But it's because that Jesus was resurrected that our justification is secured. He was raised for our justification, we read in Romans 4. And so when a church in a condition like like this one in Laodicea, is in, which happens to be a very similar condition to many in the church today, which we'll have to talk about those things next week. It's these very things about Christ Jesus that encourages us and motivates us to repent and to be reorientated so that we glorify God with our God with our lives. Jesus is the Amen. He is over all creation. And the blessed hope that we have when we are saved begins with his resurrection, with his resurrection that secures our justification and will carry his church, those who truly believe all the way into the new heavens and the new earth. We don't add to it. We don't contribute to it. It is all who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and he won't fail. And so by grace, we look to him that that's the hope provided here in this opening verse to this letter. So let's pray and then take any questions if they have any. Our father, we, do thank you for showing us this side of your character, or that—that you, Jesus, are the Amen, the faithful and true one, the one in whom every blessed promise is resting. In and we're so glad that that those things aren't dependent upon us, God. For we know that even on our very best days, we fall so short of your standard. But we thank you for sending Christ, who was perfect in every way. And we ask, Lord God, that uh, you would help us to uh, really take to heart the types of warnings and encouragements that are set forth here in these addresses to these seven churches. And next week, as we look at the specifics to this church in Laodicea, that you would remind us that because Christ is the amen, because he is the faithful and true witness, and because we know in ourselves that we fall so short, but we look at Christ, who doesn't fall short at all, that we know that we can have repentance and be right with you um, because of your the kindness that is given to us in your gospel. So we pray, Lord, that you would have mercy on us, have mercy on our families, all for Christ's glory's sake, who is worthy of all praise and adoration. And we pray this all in his holy name. Amen. All right. Any questions about that? Kind of some tough things in that that one verse, that Jesus is the amen or the beginning of creation? Like a Makes sense. Of people, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Similar to that in uh, Colossians, right? It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is said before in the Philadelphia church as well too, right? It's very similar. He's He's the true one who all the promises of God are in. All those promises are truly in him, even. You can think of it like that. All right, guys.